Tonight we're going to be talking about substitution. And um, I think all of us probably at one time or another view substitutes as a positive or a negative thing, depending on the circumstance. Sometimes substitutes are very welcomed and sometimes they are not. When I was growing up, I used to love to play sports and I hated substitutes. I admit it. I was very selfish. I didn't want anybody else to come into a game for me, whether it was baseball or basketball. I wanted to play every minute of every game from the time I was at the youngest until the time, actually, even right now, I'd probably be the same way. I never welcomed a substitute. I never understood this idea of let everybody play the same amount of time. Let's get 40 people on the team and let everybody play four minutes. Uh, I didn't understand that. Uh, I thought to myself, if we're going to do that, why even keep score? Isn't there something about competition? something about being really highly competitive. And uh, this idea of everybody gets a trophy. I I didn't think everybody should get a trophy. I thought only those who earned it should be getting a trophy. So you can imagine, as I was growing up playing sports, when a substitute was coming in for me, I did not welcome that substitute, either in baseball or basketball or anything else. Sometimes substitutes could be welcome. Uh, maybe football players, uh, a really, really hot day. They're losing like 20 pounds during the course of a game. Maybe a substitute there would be welcome. In fact, somebody said this about football. It's a, the only game played where 22 men badly in need of rest are watched by 50,000 people badly in need of exercise. And they certainly would like to have a substitute from time to time, but I, I was not one of them. Warfare. They used to have substitutes in warfare. They would pay someone to fight, somebody who could afford to pay somebody, so that that person would go and fight. The person who could afford it would stay home and give a little money but not give service to the country. This was widespread during the Civil War, particularly the beginning of the Civil War. Money had to be paid to the respective governments as well as to the substitute. The Civil War was sometimes referred to as the rich man's war, the poor man's battle. Until the practice was stopped, the principals, as they were called, were very fortunate to be able to find a substitute. But ultimately, the practice did end. But tonight, I want to talk for a little while about a practice of substitution that does not end and is very, very welcome. I even welcome this kind of substitute. It's a substitute that was provided for us in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who gives us the free gift of salvation and at the same time exemption from eternal death. It's a very, very welcome substitution. A devotional writer said this one time, A man who lived far out in the country bought his clothing from a mail order catalog. At the bottom of the printed order form, he noticed this statement, If we do not have the article you ordered in stock, may we substitute? And he wrote yes in the little blank that was provided. The first time he wrote yes, they sent him something that was worth double the price of the article he had requested. And their explanation was written. It said, we are sorry we do not have the article in stock which you ordered. We are sending you something better at our expense. And it was twice as good as what he ordered. And he realized that. After that, the man said he always printed out much more boldly the word yes at the bottom of the order blank. He knew he wouldn't be disappointed by the substitution. 
and neither will we when we see the substitution that Jesus did for us. Some of you have heard this from the time you were a small child. Some of you have heard it over and over again. Some of you have it down pat. Some of you don't. And what a great time to review part of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his work of substitution. What does it mean that Jesus died a substitutional death? What exactly does that mean? In the Bible, the death of Jesus is revealed as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. You may recall in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist, it says of him, the next day he saw the Lord Jesus coming to him and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And simply by saying the Lamb of God, all of the listeners understood what he was talking about. He was talking about a sacrifice. They understood the sacrificial animals that were part of the Old Testament law and the practice of the Jews at that time. When he pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he understood and the, the, the listeners understood that Jesus was actually dying as a substitute for those who would, would take of that sacrifice that he was offering. He died in my place as my substitute. And the point is simply this. Something happened to Christ, and because it happened to him, it doesn't have to happen to us. Christ died for our sins. We not need die for them if we accept his sacrifice. And when the Bible talks about death, it always means separation. And when it talks about the death, the the second death that's talking about being eternally separated from God, we don't ever have to worry about that because we have a substitute, provided we accept the gift that he offers in his salvation. Christ didn't die merely as an example or as a martyr. Someone has written this, the sufferings of Christ were not just the sympathetic sufferings of a friend, but the substitutionary sufferings of the Lamb of God for the sin of the world. His death is also called vicarious. It's from a Latin word. It means one in place of another. The vicarious substitutionary death of Jesus. One in place of another. And that, of course, was Jesus in place of us. Some of you who have been through our new members classes at church have heard me use this illustration a lot. It's one that I like. I heard as a child. It's one that a child can understand, and if a child can understand it, all of the rest of us can. It's a an illustration of substitution, and it takes us back to the old days of one-room schoolhouses. And if you can picture that, some of you have experienced that, some of you have read about that. One-room schoolhouse. There was a very strict lady who was teaching in that school, and you had to be strict because you had children of all ages who were there, even some of them in their mid-teens. Along, as, along with some of those who were very, very young. So she had strict rules, and those rules had to be enforced, and the punishment was always, as she said, because she didn't want to put herself in a position where she would make idle threats, and people would be threatened with a punishment if they never got it, then she would know that she would be in trouble. She had a severe rule against stealing from one another. She didn't like it at all when the children would steal something that belonged to another child. And one day, there was a bully in that class. And I'm looking around to see if I can identify a bully-looking person here. Somebody who is really big and rough and tough and 
It was her birthday Wednesday. Linnea, would you stand up and show everybody what a bully looks like? Could you do that for us? Okay, she's not a bully. But but happy birthday anyway. And imagine a bullish figure, one of the older people in this one-room schoolhouse, and somebody stole his lunch. And the teacher investigated and found out who the thief was. Unfortunately for her, it was this little tiny emaciated boy who was as thin as they come and who looked like he hadn't had a solid meal in weeks and she said to herself my rule is that if anybody steals they get 10 whacks on the back with this wooden rod that she had she thought to herself if i hit this kid 10 times with this i'll probably kill him i don't want to do this i don't know what to do i have got to go through with the punishment because otherwise I will lose face with the kids. They'll lose respect for my authority. But what can I do? And just at that moment when she was pondering what she would do, the big bully came forward. And the big bully said, wait a minute, let me take his wax for him. And that's exactly what happened. The one who had been sinned against was the one who paid the penalty for the sinner. That's what Jesus did for us. We have done a lot more than stealing somebody's lunch. We've done a lot more if we examine our lives and see all the sins that are there that we've been forgiven from. That's what the Lord Jesus has done for us. What does the Bible teach about Jesus' substitutional death? The Bible teaches us several things. First of all, it is evident that Christ did not die for his own sins, just like the bully did not suffer punishment for his own sins. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, It says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. We're told in the scriptures that God cannot sin. God doesn't tempt to sin. God cannot be tempted to sin. He doesn't sin. 1 Peter 2.22 says, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Did you catch that? He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. That word for deceit is very interesting. It has to do with guile or decoying or baiting or being wily or crafty. It's saying that Jesus committed no sin, nor did he even venture right up to the edge of it and tell a half lie or stretch the truth or do something that in any way would be deceiving. The Lord Jesus was totally without sin or any hint of any sin. That's a very significant verse. So it's evident that Christ didn't die for his own sins. If he didn't die for his own sins, whose sins did he die for? He died for our sins. And that's where the idea of substitution comes in. In Isaiah chapter 53, verses 5 and 6, it makes it as clear as it can be made. If we were indoors, I'd probably have a screen and I would emphasize some of the pronouns that are here. But I'm not inside, so... Will you emphasize them in your mind as I read them? And I'll try to put some emphasis. But we're listening for pronouns. Every time we hear the word he or his, it is going to be in place of we or us. And it is going to be Jesus doing something that should have been done to us. Here's how it reads in Isaiah 53. But he, and every time you hear that, he or his, remember it should be us. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him 
was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You know what? That's not what I call fair. But that is what I call grace. And that is what I call love. And that is what I call mercy. And it is what we call the substitutional atonement. The vicarious substitution of the Lord Jesus. Him for us. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Jesus didn't just take the physical part of that. He took the curse on himself when he was on that cross. 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds you have been healed we're saved from the penalty of that sin we're saved from the guilt of that sin it's all on the lord jesus himself but he was there because of what we did somebody writes this when you study the painting of the crucifixion by the famous dutch artist rembrandt your attention is first drawn to the Lord Jesus on the cross. Then as you look at the crowd around the cross, you're drawn to the faces of the people involved in an awful crime of crucifying the Son of God. Finally, your eyes drift to the edge of the picture and catch sight of another figure, almost hidden in the shadows. This, we are told, was a self-portrait of Rembrandt, for he recognized that by his sins, he helped nail Jesus there. He lived in the Middle Ages but he placed himself at the cross in that crowd, understanding that his sins were among those who put the Lord Jesus on the cross. Someone has aptly said it is a simple thing to say that Christ died for the sin of the world. It is quite another thing to say that Christ died for my sin. It may be an interesting pastime to point fingers at those who crucified Christ, but it is a shocking thought that I can be as indifferent as Pilate as, un, as scheming as Caiaphas, as calloused as the soldiers, as ruthless as the mob, or as cowardly as the disciples. It isn't just what they did. It was I who nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Think again of Rembrandt's painting. If you look closely, at least in your imaginative mind, you'll see that in the shadows, he's not the only one standing who wasn't really there physically. You're standing there with bloodied hands. For Christ bore the penalty of your sin. And all of us can say he was wounded for me. Four quick biblical illustrations of the substitutionary death of Jesus. First of all, the Passover lamb. We know about the Passover lamb. We know what happened when God took his people out of Egypt. We know what was going on in substitution at that particular time. 1 Corinthians 5, 7 points back to that time and says simply this, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. God spared his people. He passed over them because of the blood of the Passover lambs. Same thing happens with Christ. The ram, second illustration. 
the ram in place of Isaac in Genesis chapter 2, 22 rather, verse 13. A ram that kind of by accident, we don't believe in that, was caught in a thicket nearby when Abraham realized he wasn't going to have to sacrifice his son. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. A picture of the substitutionary atonement of the Lord Jesus. A third biblical illustration is Jesus' life as a ransom pointed out. A ransom paid instead of something else. Mark 10.45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. First Timothy 2.6, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The fourth biblical illustration, one that I think will jump out at us if I simply say the name Barabbas. Remember Barabbas, who was to have been executed, but instead crucified Jesus, they cried out. What do I do with Barabbas? Let him go. Here's what someone has said about that. Barabbas was the only man in the world who could say that Jesus Christ took his physical place. But I can say, and this is Donald Barnhouse writing, but I can say that Jesus Christ took my spiritual place, for it was I who deserved the eternal punishment of the lake of fire. He was delivered up for my offenses. He was handed over to judgment because of my sins. Christ was my substitute. He was satisfying the debt of divine justice and holiness. That is why I say that Christianity can be expressed in three phrases. I deserved hell. Jesus took my hell. There is nothing left for me but his heaven. Christ died physically for Barabbas, spiritually for the rest of us. We come to the point that I like to come to. We've seen, I believe, clear biblical evidence that Jesus died as a substitute for every one of us. So my question is, so what? So what about that? What is the importance of the substitutionary death of Christ? And let me quote two sources. The first one, the result of this substitution is itself as simple and definite as the transaction was. The Savior has already borne the divine judgments against the sinner to the full satisfaction of God. In receiving the satisfaction and the salvation which God offers, men are asked to believe this good news, recognizing that Christ died for their sins and thereby claiming Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Second source, source, the doctrine of substitution is important in that through Christ's death, the righteous demands of God have been met. It was a legal transaction in which Christ dealt with the sin problem for the human race. He became the substitute for humanity's sin. Let me illustrate it a little bit further, and then we'll bring this to a conclusion. Again, here's what a devotional writer has said. He talked about Wayne and Red, two individuals who served in the same platoon when the Allied forces marched across Europe in World War II. Wayne volunteered to be what's called the point man. He was leading his platoon into enemy territory, and Red was backing him up. The two led their men through several battles until they reached the famed Siegfried Line. They ran across no man's land and jumped into the enemy trench. When a live grenade exploded in front of them, Wayne, who was in the lead, was wounded by the blast. Seeing his helplessness, 
Red stepped forward, grabbed Wayne, whirled around, and shielded him from gunfire. A few seconds later, Red was hit by an enemy bullet and died instantly. Wayne, who survived, later wrote, No one has ever valued me more. In a sense, Jesus took the bullet that was intended for us. We were born in sin. The wages of sin is death. Because of God's great love, the Son of God became man. He lived without sinning. He took our penalty by dying on the cross. Because Jesus died, we can have eternal life. Very important question. Do you have that life? If not, you can put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ right here tonight. Then you'll be able to say, no one has ever valued me more. And if you're unclear about what it means to ask the Lord Jesus Christ to be your personal Savior, we've put several tracks over on the table there where that handsome young man is standing. Uh, right there on the table, and there's a handsome young man sitting and another handsome young man sitting. Uh, you go there and you can you can uh, pick up those tracks and read about that or talk to anybody here that you may know who knows the Lord Jesus. I'll be around. We'd love to talk to you about him. Do you have that eternal life? Can you say no one has ever valued me? more. Let me summarize where we've been. Chuck Swindle does a great job of summarizing everything that I've said so far tonight. Here's what he says. One way to understand the meaning of the death of Jesus is to imagine a courtroom scene in which we are on trial for our sins and God is the judge. Our sins against God are capital crimes. God himself is our judge and according to divine law, our crimes deserve the death penalty. Death in a spiritual sense means eternal separation from God in unending torment. That's a very serious judgment. By shedding his blood on the cross, Jesus took the punishment we deserve and offered us his righteousness. When we trust Christ for our salvation, essentially we are making a trade. By faith we trade our sin and its accompanying death penalty for his righteousness and life. In theological terms, this is called substitutionary atonement. Christ died on the cross as our substitute. Without him, we would suffer the death penalty for our own sins. I don't want to close quoting a human being. Let me close by quoting 2 Corinthians 5, 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he, that is God, made him, that is Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus, fully God, fully man, coming here to do a particular work to be the substitutionary atonement for our sins, to be the lamb of yours who takes away the sin of the world. And we pause to thank you. And my prayer tonight is that everyone here will be able to say no one has ever valued me more than the Lord Jesus, that everyone will understand what Jesus did for us so that we not only get eternal life, but we get the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. It's all part of that great trade. Thank you that that's certainly worth singing about 
for each one of us. Thank you for that worthy name of the Lord Jesus. And thank you that it is in Christ alone that we are able to see that our salvation has been secured. And we thank you for that now and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.